Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 24, and we're reading from verse 36, Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why are you do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, uh, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they, can, uh, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. So this marks a milestone in uh, my ministry after, well, three and a half years with one or two breaks in between, we come to our last study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this will be the 108th sermon I have preached in the book. That's 50 hour, 54 hours of preaching, give or take a few hours. Probably give rather than take, because I very seldom am under 30 minutes. So congratulations to you all for your perseverance, for your graciousness, and your determination in sticking uh, with it. I only hope that in some way you have gleaned a fraction of the blessing in the hearing that I have gleaned from the preparation. There's no grander and greater theme than any preacher that any preacher can preach than on the life and work of Jesus the Messiah. And there's no greater teaching a congregation can receive than the life and teaching of Jesus the Messiah. Now, in this final study, the casual reader might be forgiven for thinking that the events that we read about all happened in the same night. Uh, his appearance to the disciples, his commissioning of the, uh, of the disciples, and then his ascension into glory. But in actual fact, that these things happened over a period of 40 days or six weeks. We know that because Luke himself, in his other book, tells us that is the case. In, Luke, in Acts chapter 1, he speaks of his uh, appearance, his commissioning of them, and his ascension. And we're told specifically that this happened over a period of 40 days. Now, in his gospel, he brings all those things together, and he does that for a reason, for a purpose— and the reason and the purpose is to show us how these weak and frightened, timid disciples became a, 
group of militant missionaries who were absolutely committed to the mission of taking the gospel into all the world. Notice verses 47 and 48. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The gospel had to go to all nations and the instruments for that forward movement were the disciples. Look at verse 48. He says, you will be my witnesses. A witness is someone who testifies uh, to what they know. And these disciples are being appointed to go on a mission to all nations to testify to the truth of the gospel. And that's why Luke brings all these things together in order that we might uh, understand what inspired them and motivated them and turn them from a group of ordinary men uh, into a group of extraordinary men who did extraordinary things for God. Why would they engage in such a mission? Well, this morning I want you to notice four things. The foundation to their mission, the task of their mission, the equipping uh, for their mission and their motivation in their mission. So first of all, then, the foundation to their mission. Uh, you remember the disciples only a few days before had failed the Lord and fled from him. J.C. Riles says they had broken their promises, they had forgotten their profession, and they had forsaken their Lord. And in spite of what Jesus had predicted and what the Old Testament had stated, uh, they were not expecting or anticipating a resurrection. The resurrection was not on their minds. However, when news began to filter back, faith began to rise within them. They had the report of the woman who first visited the tomb on the Sunday morning, then the report of John and Peter who found the tomb empty, then the Lord appeared to Peter, not because, as one commentator says, he deserved to see him most, but rather he needed to see him most. And then while they're still talking about uh, uh, that news, two disciples, maybe a husband and wife, break in with their news into the room and tell them that they had met the Lord on the Emmaus Road. And here they are, all together, discussing, debating, deliberating on the significance of those events, and Jesus himself comes and stands among them. Verse 36 as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. What a moment that must have been. Here they were discussing, deliberating, and debating about Jesus, and Jesus comes and stands among them. And three things happen. He speaks a word of peace. Their response is panic, and so Jesus offers proof. Uh, verse 36, Jesus said, Peace be with you. That's the traditional Jewish greeting that every Jew would have greeted another Jew with. Shalom. But it's ironic in this situation because the disciples were far from being at peace. They were oscillating between hope and despair. What happens next is panic. Look at verses 37 and 38. But they were startled and frightened and thought they'd saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds? I remember they had heard the reports. They had been reminded of the predictions of Jesus and the prophecies in the Old Testament about the resurrection, and still they're hovering on the brink of unbelief. They are troubled and full of doubt. Why do thoughts arise in your minds, says the authorized version? 
That word thoughts or doubts, as the ESV has it, is the word for dispute. There was a dispute going on in their heads. Their minds were oscillating between faith and reason, and reason wins because they conclude that they had seen a ghost. But as they are shaking in their sandals and maybe hiding behind furniture, thinking they've seen a ghost, there is peace, panic, and then proof. And the proof he offers is twofold. He offers bodily proof and biblical proof. First of all, bodily proof. See my hands on my feet, touch and see. This is uh, I myself, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone that you see I have. He says, look, touch, touch. I have flesh and bone. The Greek there implies that they did actually reach out and touch him. They could feel the bones beneath his flesh. And even that that uh, touching was not enough to convince them. Look at verse 41. And why they were still, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. It's hard to make sense of that statement really, isn't it? Why they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Uh, they were in that wacky state of giddy uncertainty. I suppose it's equivalent to our expression. It seemed too good be, to be true. Lenski, the German uh, commentator, translates it says, uh, and says their hearts were too small to take in the joy. And what does Jesus do? I, I really love this. He says, uh, he asks them for something to eat. And it, it's not simply a distraction, it's a confirmation. Because disembodied spirits, ghosts don't have an appetite. They don't have the physicality to eat and pass food. So that's the first proof Jesus presents these wavering disciples, bodily proof. The second is biblical proof. Look at verse 44 through to 46. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. I find this absolutely fascinating. Over the last two weeks, we have noticed how how Luke reminds uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection of the, the biblical evidence of the Word of God that on the mess road to these two bewildered disciples who are returning home, he doesn't reveal his identity immediately, but he Uh, explains the scriptures, what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And now to these uh, frightened, disorientated, disturbed disciples, he takes them to the scriptures again to prove that the Old Testament taught, yes, that Christ would suffer and die, but that he would also rise again. Bible, Bible, Bible. And I think Luke wants to emphasize to us that although we don't physically see the risen Lord Jesus, the proof of the resurrection is in our Bibles that the Old Testament, completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus, testifies to his life, to his death, to his burial, and to his resurrection. Jesus proved the doctrine of the resurrection. He opened their minds to understand 
the Scriptures. And it's that proof, bodily and biblical proof, that Jesus gave them to undergird their missionary expansion to inspire them to go out to a hostile world with the gospel to evangelize. The apostle says, Leon Morris, were not men poised on the point of belief, needing only a shadow of an excuse to spring into action for the proclamation of the resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. Here they are in this upper room. John says that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, frightened, discouraged, um, and timid men, but suddenly they're transformed into a vigorous, militant, missionary movement that would go anywhere and do anything for Christ. And what transformed them was this conviction that Jesus was alive, that he had risen from the dead. So the order here is a, a word of peace, a reaction of panic, the giving of proof, and then proclamation that this transformation, this uh, conviction that Jesus had indeed risen led to uh, transformation, which led to proclamation. They believed in their hearts uh, that this message was absolutely true and was worth taking to an unbelieving and hostile world. Indeed, it was a message worth, worth dying for. And that's the foundation of all mission. Why engage in mission? Why go to the uttermost parts of the world? Because it's true. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. And Jesus was raised to life. And he's alive now just as he was then. You see, if you, if you don't believe the essential truths of the gospel, there's no point in mission. Why would you go? We go. Because it's absolutely true. That's the foundation to their mission. The second thing I want you to notice is the task of their mission. Uh, what then was the task that these men were entrusted with? What was their job description? Well, you see it there in verses 45 uh, through to 47. We're told that Jesus opened their minds, notice this, to understand from the Scriptures not only that the Christ would suffer on the third day would rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed uh, in his name to all nations. Do you notice that? So because of the truth of the death and resurrection, the message of repentance and forgiveness of sin is available and that message is to go to all nations. The Old Testament predicted that. Predicted that. Now, with 2,000 years of accumulative church history and mission behind us, it's easy for us to gloss over the impact that those words would have had uh, on the disciples when they first heard them to all nations. Israel hated the nations. They wanted nothing to do with the nations. They were the most xenophobic people on the face of the earth. The nations were a temptation from which Israel must separate herself, a corruption uh, that she must avoid. The only reason the rabbis taught that God had created the nations was to fuel the fires of hell. Leave the nations. Curse the nations. Damn the nations. That was the prayer of every faithful Jew. 
Yet Jesus, in this radical and shocking departure from conventional wisdom, tells them and commissions the disciples to take the gospel to all nations. And I don't need, I think, to remind you that the disciples were steeped in the prejudice of first century Judaism. Remember in Acts chapter 1, when we read a fuller account of these events, they say to Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking of Israel. And Jesus says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's your commission is to the ends of the earth. And what, what Jesus does, and I think this is thrilling, is he proves from the Old Testament that the gospel was for the nations. This is what was written, that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And although the Jews didn't see it or understand it, God had revealed even on the pages of the Old Testament that the gospel, his truth, was for the nations. Do you remember the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? Through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You remember the great promise in Psalm Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The Father speaking to the Son, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You remember in Isaiah 53, which begins in Isaiah 52, and so he will sprinkle many nations, he will cleanse the nations, he will forgive the nations. He will um, save the nations. And we could go on and on. I've given you one example from the law, one from the prophets, and one from the Psalms. And Jesus informed these disciples that even in the pages of the Old Testament, God had revealed his program. And that program was to take the gospel into all the world. His truth would be preached uh, in his name to all nations. There is a universal agenda to the gospel. It's for all nations. That right at the heart of God is this, uh, uh, is, uh, is this agenda for the redemption of the world. And that's why, as Revelation tells us, that when that great company of the redeemed are gathered, they will be gathered from every tribe and language and people and nation. And if God's agenda is the redemption of the world, then every Christian must be involved in mission and that agenda, the redemption of the world. I remember somebody saying to me, you know, I I, I don't come to church when a missionary is speaking because I'm I'm not interested in mission. I'm only interested in in the Word. For a Christian not to be interested in mission is an oxymoron. Because to be interested in mission is to be interested in the things that God is interested in. And I, I, I think that person was as far from God as heaven is from hell. God's heartbeat is mission. All, all nations. How could you not be interested in the spread of the gospel around the world? I uh, was reading in the paper about a brother and sister and they brother was diagnosed with leukemia and he needed a bone marrow transplant and the only match that he had was his sister but his sister refused to donate the bone marrow because as she said she was afraid of needles 
and sentenced her brother to death. How selfish. How immoral. How wicked to have the remedy in our hands and not to pass that on to anyone else. We must take the gospel to the nations. Our task in mission is to preach repentance and forgiveness to all nations. I love the story of Eric Liddell. Remember, even with the pressure of royalty upon him, he refused to compromise and and defile his conscience and run on the Sunday. So he uh, gave up that race that he was expected to win 100 meters, and I think was it the 400 meters that he, he then entered at the last minute and, and won. And uh, he was a national hero in Scotland, and it's not generally known, but he went on then to be a missionary in China. And uh, he was this uh, national celebrity, and when he was leaving at Waveney Station there in Edinburgh, all the uh, uh, supporters came, the politicians, the dignitaries all came to wave him off. And as he was uh, leaving in the train, he opened the window and he shouted, Christ for the nations! And then he broke into, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its excessive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore to moons shall wax and wane no more. Christ for the nations. That's the task of mission. The foundation mission, it's true. Christ is risen. The task of their mission. The third thing I want you to notice is the equipping for their mission. Now, the task of taking the gospel to the nations was enormous. It was a, a, a daunting task. Think of who these men were. They were a ragtag and bobtailed group of misfits. There wasn't a scholar among them, not even a trained rabbi. They were drawn from the lower classes of society, ordinary men, a collection of non-entities. Probably none of them had ever traveled outside the promised land. And yet they're going to they're being called to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. I'm sure they were shaking in their sandals, initially thinking it was a ghost, but now thinking of the task that they had. But there's more. Look carefully at, at verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name beginning in Jerusalem. Did you notice that? Beginning in Jerusalem. When we hear those words, we think, well, that's nice. It's, it's kind of a little cushion for them before they engage in the, the real work. They begin at home and then move out to the world. Let me remind you that Jerusalem was not their home. For these disciples were from Galilee. J.C. Ryle describes Jerusalem as the wickedest city in the world. It was a city that was full of pride, unbelief, and self-righteousness, of hardness of heart. It was this city that had crucified the Lord of glory. And yet in Jerusalem, the first proclamation of the gospel had to be made. To be honest, to go to the ends of the earth would have been easier than beginning in Jerusalem. The disciples had locked themselves in this room for fear of what was going on in Jerusalem. But it was in Jerusalem they had to begin. So with feelings of inadequacy and fearing the job and hand that was necessary, that our Lord uh, not only commissioned them, but equipped them. And he does that in, in two ways. By grinding them in Scripture and by sending his Holy Spirit. 
And in the work of the gospel and the task of mission, those two things are vitally important. We need to to know the scripture and we need to be able to handle the word of God and we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He grinds them in scripture. We've already noticed these verses. Um, Verse um, 44, then he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Hebrew Bible was divided into three, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law was the first five books of the Bible. The prophets were all the historical books, and the prophecies and the Psalms included all the wisdom literature, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. And Jesus opened their minds. I don't think that's a a supernatural, or it necessarily needs to be understood in a supernatural way. He just opened their minds. They grasped biblical truth. They understood the truth of the gospel as revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. But he showed them the gospel from the Old Testament. And if we are to be effective witnesses in taking this gospel to the ends of the earth, we need to know our Bibles. Do you know your Bible? Can you handle your Bible? Can you explain from the Bible the truth of the gospel? Can you explain from the Bible repentance and forgiveness in Jesus' name? We need to know our Bibles because all of God's work is done in uh, God's way, which is through a proclamation of truth. Thomas Watson, the Puritans, described the Bible as the breeder and feeder of faith. It's through the Bible we come to faith And it's by the Bible we grow in faith. And when Jesus commissions these disciples, he grounds them in Scripture. He he, uh, informs them what the Bible teaches. That's why we believe that anybody going in to serve the Lord needs to have an understanding of what the Bible teaches. So he grounds them in Scripture, and then he promises them the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 49. And behold... I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the disciples are commanded to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father is realized and the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. Jesus, according to John 16, had asked the Father to send the Spirit, and he explained in John 14 that it was necessary This this is a strange verse, isn't it? It's necessary that he would go away so that the Comforter would come, that the Spirit would come. And so in Acts 2, when Jesus ascended, he sent the Spirit, and the Spirit comes upon the church in Acts chapter 2. So 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension, the promise is fulfilled and the Spirit comes. He clothes them with power. The authorized version says um, he endues them with power, but literally uh, clothes them with power. He clothes them with power. Here they are, weak, timid, frightened, but he clothes them with the power of his spirit. The Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite or dynamic. He closes them with dynamic power. Now notice this, stay in this city, says Jesus, until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't do anything till that happens. Wait in the city until you receive the power. Don't engage in evangelism. 
Um, don't engage in mission until the Spirit comes. And they are transformed from weakness to powerfulness through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecost was a, a one-off event. When, when the Spirit was poured out uh, at Pentecost, the church was baptized by the Spirit. It was the initial work of the Spirit coming upon the church to equip them for the work of the gospel. Now, everyone added to the church since that time uh, is automatically baptized with the Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit came upon the church, and then the invisible church, the universal church, but everybody added to that church then is automatically baptized by the Spirit. We know that because what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 12 or 13, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given the same Spirit to drink. Baptism of the Spirit in Scripture is never a dividing factor. Some have it and are in a super league of spirituality and others don't. All have been baptized by the Spirit because there is no way of entering the body other than by the baptism of the Spirit. So if you are a believer this morning, you have been baptized by the Spirit. But you need to understand, and I need to understand, that when it comes to the work of the gospel, we are absolutely dependent upon the supernatural power of the Spirit. We are dependent upon Him to bring conviction of sin upon the unbeliever, to open their eyes, to see the loveliness of Jesus, to regenerate them, to breathe new life into them. That we cannot do these things in, in and of ourselves. And if that is true, then we should pray for the Spirit. They had to wait for the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We should pray for the Spirit. We should ask for the Spirit. We should plead for the Spirit so that we become effective in what He has called us to do. So in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, there were 13 steps up to the pulpit. And Spurgeon, every step he took, he used to repeat that line out of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 He said in a sermon, without the, the Spirit of God, we are nothing. We are ships without sails, chariots without horses. Um, we are like branches without sap, withered and dying. We are like fire without, uh, we are like coal without fire. We are useless. And we're not looking for a, a second experience. We're looking for the, the infusion of the power of the Spirit that He works in us and through us to accomplish His purposes. And that will manifest itself in our prayer to God that he might work in us and through us and that we might yield ourselves up to him. Do not separate those two things. Jesus grounded them in Scripture and then he promised them the Holy Spirit. You cannot separate these two things because the Word is Spirit-inspired. Don't, don't let anybody pitch one against the other. Oh, we're, we, we have too much Bible and not enough Spirit or with too much Spirit and not enough Bible. You can't separate those things. Those things go together. And it's both that are required in the proclamation 
of the gospel. So he grounds them in Scripture. He promises them the Holy Spirit. So the foundation of mission, it was true. That's why they moved from fear uh, to faith, from panic to proclamation. The truth, uh, the task of mission is to preach repentance and forgiveness to every nation. The equipping of mission, he grounded them in Scripture and he promised them the Holy Spirit. And the last thing I want you to notice is the motivation for mission. Uh, for mission. Look at verses 50 to 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Here Luke gives a brief account of the ascension. He gives more detail in, uh, in Acts uh, chapter 1 in his other book. But uh, here we're told that Jesus leads the disciples out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifts up his hands and blesses them. Now, lifting up hands and blessing was the last act of the priest after the sacrifice had been offered. So he would lift up his hands and he would pronounce the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. That was the very last act that he would do. And in doing this, Jesus is telling him that his work on earth is over. His sacrifice is completed and has been accepted by God. Now, it's why he is blessing them that he is taken up into heaven. Now, we're not told how that happened, just that he was taken up. Now, why was the ascension necessary? We know that Jesus appeared and disappeared over 40 days. Why did he not just say goodbye, disappear, and not come back? Why did they witness this ascension? Well, not only was it a fitting conclusion to his ministry, but there were a number of truths that were established in the ascension. That he went to heaven in bodily form. That our Savior in heaven is, is fully human and fully divine. There's a man in the glory. There is one who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. There is one who is tender and compassionate. Who, the one who wept at the grave of Lazarus is the one who is in glory. There's a man in the glory. That's important. It's important that the disciples understood that he did not die. There are other resurrections in Scripture. Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, but they have our sympathy because, as C.S. Lewis put it, they had all their dying to do over again. But Jesus rose bodily into glory. They knew that he didn't die because he rose, die again, that he rose bodily into heaven. And in the ascension, he went to the place of authority and glory. He, he, Psalm 2, he took his throne um, Alex preached on Daniel 7 a few weeks ago that the, the, the Son of Man approaches the throne and receives authority. He's, he's in the place of authority. He said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And fourthly, if he went to heaven physically in bodily form, when he returns, he will return physically in bodily form. But as Revelation says, every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. So although we don't understand all that happened in the ascension, we know that it was necessary for the disciples and that it made a huge impact upon them. 
But what I, what I want, want you to see, and I think this is vitally important when it comes to the task of mission. Look at verse 52. And they worshipped him. Do you see that? And they worshipped him. The penny finally dropped. They knew, as we know, that to worship anyone other than the true and living God is blasphemy. But in the ascension, when he went up to glory, they were absolutely convinced of his royalty, of his sovereignty, of his deity, that he was and is the true and living God, that they worshipped him as God. And so when he commissioned them to go out into all the world to preach the gospel, it was a, a commission that came from the throne of God. It was God himself who commissioned them. You remember C.T. Studd made that remarkable statement, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice that I can make for him can be too great. If this one who came into our world as a baby lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God and went and suffered and died upon the cross for our sin and for the redemption of the world, if he is God of very God, and no sacrifice, no sacrifice that I can make for him can be too great. They worshipped him. He was and he is the true and living God. And as God, he deserves our love. He deserves our loyalty. He deserves our lives. Nothing else will do. The foundation to their mission they were convinced that this was true. They moved from panic to proclamation because they knew that he had indeed risen. The task of their mission was to preach the forgiveness of sins and repentance to all nations. How mind-blowing that must have been. The equipping for them for mission, he grounded them in Scripture and he promised them the Holy Spirit and their motivation for mission he ascended into glory with all the trappings of glory, sovereignty, and deity that he is a God who's worth serving. Amen.